What's up, good people, and welcome to Good Things with Matt Wells. Uh, it's good to have you here, and I hope you're doing real good. I've got some green tea. Let's take a little sip before we get going. I want to welcome uh, all of our new friends who are finding the podcast. I'm so glad that you have found us, and I hope that you're enjoying taking a spin through the archives. And of course, to all of our OGs who have been here uh, with me since episode one. Thanks for listening. We've had some incredible guests. Uh, you know, I think we're at 20, this is 21 episodes now. And uh, we've had some wonderful, wonderful conversations, folks sharing their, their stories that have been, you know, really inspiring and motivating for me. And they remind me about the importance of communicating. You know, basic human connection. Just what I'm even trying to do here with you. And as much as we, we have all become more connected in some respect because of uh, social media, I feel, like, I feel like we've drifted apart somehow. Communicating with walls between us, screens. And look, I know that an interview podcast is not quite sitting down for um, a face-to-face conversation with someone or even talking to you through this microphone is not quite having a cup of tea together. But I don't know, I think it's a pretty good balance of using technology to connect and, and to communicate. And connection and communicating, for me, is, is just so important. It's, it, it's been a big part of my life as a musician, as an interviewer, as an actor. And it happens to be a very big theme on this episode which really got me thinking about it. So, let's get into it and jump back to the year 2019 when I worked with Eugene Levy. Now, this is a little bit of a different approach for me this week. Usually on each episode, I will recall a time I interviewed someone from my much music and much more music past as a lead-in to our guest and As many of you know, since 2014, when I left hosting and interviewing after like 11 years, I started this new journey of acting and filmmaking. And I started pretty late in life. Most of my actor friends have been doing this since they left high school or university, but my path has been much different. And I still kind of feel like a baby actor in many ways, having only been doing it now for like seven or eight years. I'm still paying my dues, which I love. I really do. Like building something, for me, I have learned is always the most exciting part. Like the journey of it, uh, as much if not more than, you know, the destination. And in 2019, uh, there was a big milestone for me as an actor uh, because I got to do an episode of Schitt's Creek. Now this was um, season six, one of the last episodes of the show which then, you know, goes on to sweep awards season and it establishes itself as, you know, the television phenomenon we've come to know it as. So I got to do a scene in my episode with Eugene Levy. Legend, right? Icon. SCTV, Waiting for Guffman and all his work with Christopher Guest. Splash, American Pie. I mean, this is just to name a few. So this was a very big deal for me. And... um You know, to be honest with you, it really changed the course of my acting career. My movie, Crown and Anchor, had just come out to some critical acclaim, and now I was on an episode of one of the most talked about shows on television. 
But the biggest impact that this experience had on me was not just, you know, that it helped push my career forward, not just watching Eugene Levy work, which, trust me, was unbelievable. It, it was witnessing how gracious he was, how kind he was. And despite how many iconic figures in music and film I had interviewed up to that point, the idea of going toe-to-toe with this master of acting and comedy, like it felt like it would be <laughs> very intimidating. But it just wasn't. And it's because of Eugene. He made every person on set feel like his equal. And at the end of the day when we wrapped, he walked around the room and he shook the hand of every single person who had worked that day and thanked them for their time and their effort. And that had a massive impact on me. I've never seen anything like it before or after. And I'm telling you, this has shaped how I carry myself now on set or in a work environment. And I believe it has everything to do with his longevity in this business. It's not just his gift of communicating as an actor or a larger-than-life personality who is famous, but his ability to connect with everyone on a basic human level. And my guest knows something about that. Something about the art of communication and the importance of basic human connection. My guest is Canadian broadcast legend and fashion icon, Jeannie Becker. Jeannie Becker has not only blazed the trail as a pioneer of music television through her work on the new music, which predates even MTV. I mean, look, just do a quick YouTube search to find some of her interviews with folks like Iggy Pop or the Ramones. Truly, she was part of history. Not only has she blazed the trail through the fashion world with her work on the um, internationally acclaimed show Fashion Television for almost 30 years, but Jeannie has made a career of being a master communicator, communicating with the biggest names in the world and masterfully finding a way to make her interviews feel like real conversations. And she has also built her career by connecting with people in a very special way. Connecting with those that she interviewed and connecting with us through the TV screen, like very few have. A total legend with a truly unique story that I believe, if you don't already know, will find so inspirational. And to be honest with you, even though I've done thousands of interviews, This one is different for me. I have watched all of Jeannie Becker's music interviews and her style always inspired me. This is kind of like, in some ways, the student interviewing the teacher. And you want to talk about somebody who is kind and gracious and makes you feel at ease? Well, that's Jeannie Becker. And I am just so thrilled to have her on the pod. So... Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. And this is Jeannie Becker on Good Things with Matt Wells. Hello, Jeannie Becker. 
Hello, Matt. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for asking. The question is, are you ready to tell me something good? <laughs> I only speak good. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's all about good conversation. And I hear you're a master of that sort of thing. And that's why I agreed to do your podcast. <laughs> that that is that is high praise coming from uh, the master interviewer herself. So I think we'll wait till I'm done to see if you still feel that way. <laughs> Jeannie, I want to start by talking a little bit about um you as an interviewer since we're there okay you know when i when i worked at much music and much more music one of the true privileges of my time there was that i had access to the library of all the past footage the historical footage and interviews and watching the conversations that you had with musicians and artists was truly like watching a masterclass and i and what always amazed me was that i know that you didn't have the benefit of the type of research that I could do. Maybe you had a bio, maybe you had some magazines, but it, what struck me was your skill as a communicator and the rock stars were still engaged and still interested. And I need to know how the hell you did it. You know, I. it's incredible that you brought that up because that isn't even something that I, I think about now in retrospect, but I should, because you're darn right. I didn't have the luxury of that um, incredible monster of the internet uh, in those early days, especially, you know, for the music interviews that I did um, starting in 1979. And I probably did the new music till about 1986, you know, when it, it was already um, much music as well. And I think because of that, because I didn't have the luxury of going down all those rabbit holes and the luxury of perhaps some might say too much information, um, you know, I I really I think it worked for me a lot better because I wasn't necessarily interested in a lot of that minutia. Um, I was very interested in creative energy and um, exposing. Uh, the person for, you know, who they were at that moment in time. And I think that not being bogged down by all these, you know, facts that I would have to, you know, remember and, you know, never in my life did I ever write a question down. I mean, I see so many interviewers today with notes on their laps. I I, I would you know, say, yes, go find... One moment when I had a note in my lap for an interview, and you know I've interviewed like you know untold uh, people over the years, just uh -huh. like the number I can't even imagine what it would be. And never, ever, ever was I prepared in that way. I mean, some may find fault with that and say, "Well, that you know," when you think of someone like Brian Linehan, who was an absolute genius back in the day doing these movie interviews um, with, with uh, film stars. And, and I actually co-hosted a show with him for a while called Movie Television. And he had filing cabinets filled with uh, all kinds of notes uh, and research material. But that was just not my style. I was much more about spontaneity and, um, and charm, hopefully, uh, because I've I needed to yeah. charm these people. Uh, I needed them to like me. And very often you only got a very limited time with these people. Sometimes like if you were, mm -hmm. you know, met them on a movie junket, it would be like four minutes and, and you had to really, you know, kind of uh, gel with them right off the bat or, 
you were lost. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, it was it was a much uh, I don't know, kind of a much more pure thing that I think I was doing. Um, and and it, it suited me. It suited my style. It suited the kind of show that I was doing because it wasn't like an in depth, you know, tell me the story of your life type of thing. Uh, but it was just capturing the kind of energy and uh, and and uh, the zeitgeist um, of you know the the situation uh it really was a wonderful fun time it was such a great ride i sort of lament the fact that uh that doesn't happen more often now yeah i i agree i you know i left much music and bell media like 2014 and and then i sort of moved over to the acting and filmmaking world but i started doing the podcast again for a bunch of reasons but not the least of which was that i really missed this I really missed having these type of conversations. I know that um, from all these people that you you've interviewed, and and you know, and that includes everything you did with with fashion television, which we'll get into. But all that those interviews you did, that that communicating, that connecting with each other, um, that we do as as a guest and an interviewer, it the irony is not lost to me that the art of miming traces back to like Roman times and Chinese and Japanese cultures, this timeless universal <laughs> art of communicating when you don't even speak that desire to connect with each other. It's not lost to me that you kind of built a career in interviewing and telling stories and you started early in your life training as a mime like that. I, that there has to be a connection somehow there. My story is that I start, I just wanted to communicate even as a kid. I started taking drama lessons when I was 12 years old and uh, went to theater school uh, in New York. And I was an actress. I started acting professionally right. at the age of 16. I only got into mime because I became fascinated with the fact that it was such an exacting technique. I mean, you either created the illusion or you didn't. And I had so much respect for that technique. Whereas it, with acting, it was like, oh, you know, you would get the part because you have the you know, the right color of hair or the right shape of nose, or it just seemed so superficial to me um, sometimes. So I thought, oh, I really, really need to learn an exacting technique. Uh, so I thought mine would be a great thing because I always loved dance and I had to study dance in New York as well uh, when I had been studying acting. So, um, you know, that that's how I got into it. You know, oh, it's great because you don't need props. It doesn't matter, you know, what you're wearing in terms of costume. You don't need anybody else. It's just you and a stage and an audience. Um, and, and that's why I fell in love with it. But um, I guess, yeah, mine does figure into, you know, everything I do because everything that you study in your life, I think, becomes a part of you. Um, and maybe it is the way I communicate. You know, maybe it, it, my facial expressions are more exaggerated because I was a mime artist or, you know, talking with my hands a lot, which oh, just looking at my hand now. Yes, I do that a lot too. So, you know, I really put everything I have into a conversation um, oftentimes. Uh, so yeah. I think that that's an interesting observation uh, on your part as well, Matt. Oh, thank you. Well, it's just it's it is it's just that idea of communicating, you know, and and how how more precise do you need to be to make sure that you're communicating than as a mime when you ha you have no words, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the irony was not lost to me at all. And, um, you know, and I know that you trained with uh, the same gentleman who trained Marcel Marceau, correct? Yes, and David Bowie, I might add. Yeah, that's right. With, that's uh, right. Yeah, Etienne de Creux, he was known as the father of modern mime. And he yeah. really turned uh, mime into 
that kind of higher art form because before it was just, you know, pantomime, which is okay too, but it was very, you know, kind of cheesy, you know, the kind of sticky things that one did, you know, in the park and then you'd pass the hat, uh, that kind of mime that, you know, Robin Williams did that in Washington Square right. Park uh, when he was a young actor. Uh, and, you know, Shields and Yarnell, I don't know if you remember that team from the 70s, you probably don't, but uh, they were uh, a couple from San Francisco that used to do this, you know, robotic kind of, uh, the, the type of stuff that Michael Jackson, I think, was really inspired by. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, or, or like what Marcel Marceau did, uh, well, he, yes, he studied with Etienne de Creux, and then he he took it and made it into something that would appeal to the masses. Um, but yeah, this old man, wow, I, I studied with him in his basement in the Bois de Boulogne. And actually, um, Jessica Lang had just uh, been there studying with, uh, and no, actually, we, we even crossed over. She was in the more advanced class because she was older <laughs> than me. Um, Jessica Lang was studying there as well. So yeah, it was incredible to be studying art in Paris. For me, at the age of 21, you know, the first time I'd ever even been across the Atlantic, it was the most romantic existence imaginable. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. And and Jeannie, the reason that I I wanted to to briefly talk about you know mime and your history because I, I've heard you talk about it before, but not only the idea of communicating, which is so important and so important to what you do, but you know Marcel Marceau, um, and I'm sure you know this. You know, before he be became found this world acclaim as a mime artist, he used his skills to help smuggle Jewish children out of Nazi occupied France when he was part of the French resistance. His father died in a concentration camp. And I and I very and this week, like this is one of the beautiful things about interviewing because I get to interview you. I, I spent time trying to understand Marcel Marceau better this week, which was such a cool thing to go through. And I, and I read a speech of his where he says, destiny permitted me to live. That is why I have to bring hope to people who struggle in the world. Mm -hmm. And having heard you speak about your own parents in the past, I have to imagine it's not just the miming and the communicating and the artistry of Marcel Marceau that you connect with. Uh, yes, that's true. And I actually had the privilege of meeting and interviewing Marcel Marceau when uh, he came to Toronto uh, back in, it's probably like the, the late uh, 80s to perform. I think he did a performance at... Uh, at York University, uh, and and he never shut up. <laughs> he never stopped talking. I guess he was making up for lost time. No, he was incredibly charming. We got along like a house on fire, um, as you can imagine. And uh, yes, there is that connection that my parents are Holocaust survivors. Uh, he actually, you know, um, saw the, the horror and the fear with his own eyes um, back in the day, and did feel a kind of responsibility as I do feel a responsibility. I've always felt a responsibility to make up for a lot of the stuff that my parents couldn't do. Like their, their youth was nipped in the bud. I mean, their, their young lives were just really um, shattered by uh, what, what went on and they were on the run for years um, escaping the Nazis uh, that way. And I, always thought growing up that it was my responsibility to lead not just a you know a good life and and not just a great life but it was my responsibility to lead an absolutely fabulous life and make up for all the stuff that they never really got a chance to do and take advantage of all the the opportunities and the privileges uh, that were before me um and 
And now I feel a kind of responsibility to help spread the light that, uh, that they shone because they managed to find light in all the darkness. They managed to rebuild their shattered lives. I mean, their entire families were decimated. You know, I grew up without grandparents, without aunts and uncles because um, they were, you know, taken from us. So it, that's interesting, that kind of, you know, the gravitas that exists um, within you and the way you see the world from a very early age when that's just become part of your DNA because I grew up on those stories of war. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't want, I, I remember being five years old, I was like hiding under the bed because I didn't want to hear any more war stories. My parents talked about it incessantly. I mean, many Holocaust survivors never don't talk about it. They don't want to revisit those experiences and they just keep it to themselves. But my parents found it, I guess, therapeutic to talk about it all the time with certainly with their friends who, you know, and, and with us, with my sister and myself. Uh, so it, I just grew up on that stuff and it really made me who I am. You know, Jeannie, that, that fight and that struggle that you personally went through in your career, in your personal life, certainly back in the day in a male dominated industry as one of the faces of the new music. Um, and then, you know, the, the struggle that I've heard you talk about even just trying to get the job as the host of fashion television, that fight to get through those types of personal struggles, that, that came from your parents, right? Yeah, without a question. My parents uh, raised me to dream and believe, and most importantly, to be fearless and tenacious. That was my dad's motto. Don't be afraid and never give up. You know, and if you're fearless and tenacious, you can accomplish just about anything, really. I had a lot of what uh, is called in Yiddish chutzpah, you know, it's a kind of translates as balls, you know, a kind of gutsiness, a kind of nerve. Um, and so I wasn't afraid to knock on doors and go for what I really wanted. So, you know, obviously you're known for so many things, but around the world, most prominently as the as the face and one of the people who shaped fashion television. Um, for 27 years on uh, over 130 countries, you know, there's so much glamour associated with that world, um, obviously. But what I love is that watching all those old shows and those old clips, you never really took yourself too seriously on camera. You're never afraid to show the outtakes or the moments when you couldn't get access. Why was that important to you? Because I know you made a point of putting that in the show. Because it was incredibly important to me. And I think it's really, because I've been thinking a lot about this lately, you know, what what was the most important thing for me to really do with the platform that I had and the manner in which I communicated? And that was to really show the vulnerability in people and humanize um, some of these celebrities and myself because I've been elevated, you know, to this platform where most people only got to see me, you know, on a TV screen. And I think that that's the thing that that comforts me personally when i understand when i realize that everybody is just a human you know on this planet and no matter how much we you know glorify them or lionize them or you know or celebrate them and and put them up there at the end of the day we're all just human beings you know with the same wants needs fears in, insecurities um cravings all, all that. Um, so 
it was important for me to to sort of you know pull back the velvet curtain and really show people um that these iconic figures were only human after all and for myself i think it it helped uh you know endear me to people um because they saw that it wasn't always that easy i didn't ever want it to look like oh look at this i just got an interview with uh you know madonna or i just you know it was just so easy to go up to uh you know robert de niro and ask a question at a fashion show like ah no it was there was a there were a lot of snubs i took a lot of shit <laughs> i took a lot of uh abuse it was actually often quite dehumanizing for me i must say the way um i was treated the lack of respect for um a lot of you know media people especially at a time when media was exploding so you know but i don't know maybe okay it's not like i blame these celebrities they didn't like the fact that all of a sudden there were you know 50 microphones being shoved in their faces and they they had to be on but you know it but it bothered me sometimes as i thought well why do, why are you out here at this fashion show if you don't expect to be interviewed like i remember you know kanye <laughs> in those early days when he was still relatively normal <laughs> he would <laughs> he would like pull me over he was trying to be nice and he'd say Listen, I'm not doing any media interviews, okay? So just don't ask me any questions, okay? And I went, oh, okay. At least he did that. Others would just, you know, either ignore me um, or they would pretend that they were, you know, on their phone, they're too busy to talk to me or, uh, you know, I'd have to chase them. And then finally, sometimes they they thought that was kind of funny. So then they would turn around and talk to me. Yeah, it was, you know what? It was totally dehumanizing. What can I tell you a lot of the times? Some of the people were really nice and very compassionate and kind and, and did give me the time of day, but I was always prepared for, you know, a battle. You know, I elbowed my way through countless scrums and uh, always felt quite victorious when I did manage to get like a 10 second soundbite. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, Jeannie, what about for yourself? I mean, you're talking about showing how human, you know, these celebrities can be. And and when we'd see these outtakes of you or, or being snubbed by a celebrity, that's one side of, of of behind the veil, even for you. But what about when you when the camera wasn't rolling and you're across the world at these fabulous events, but maybe the only thing you really want is to be home with your daughters? In those low moments, can you talk a little bit about the dichotomy between the professional and the personal in those low moments and how you got through it? No, well, Matt, you know, like I've often said that I cried myself to sleep in glamorous hotel rooms, you know, in exotic locations around the world. Um, and I really did. But that I think is definitely something that every working mother can relate to. Um, there, There's that point in your life when you realize that you want to have it all but you, can you really uh yeah you can if you're willing to you know go through a lot of pain and and I don't regret a minute of it yes it, it's sad that I didn't get to spend more time with my girls when they were growing up but um I get to spend time with them now and they have become incredible uh artists and incred incredible creative people, um, very kind, loving, um, beautiful, beautiful young women. And um, I, I would hope to think that somehow what I did and the way I decided to lead my life, uh, I would hope to think that that was a bit of an example for them. Uh, I encouraged them like to blaze their own trails, of course. I never wanted them to end up doing like what I was doing. But I... 
I was very passionate about what I was doing and still am. I'm very passionate about my work. Like I really get my back up if anyone said, oh, so are you retired? No, I'm not retired and I will never retire because I absolutely love what I do. I don't even think of it as work um, a lot of the time, really. So uh, it, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, you know, mix to really have that cozy, homey family life. Cause like I did, you know, we did spend great time together when, when the kids were younger, like I would travel the world Monday through Friday and every weekend, no matter what, we would all get together as a family and we would go off to our tiny little rustic cottage in Muskoka. And we would sit there by that sparkling lake and have the most glorious family time together. Um, you know, and I did that for like many years for the first, uh, really, 10 years, say, of, of, you know, when my kids were, you know, babies till they were like about, uh, you know, eight and 10 years old. Um, sadly, then my marriage broke up, which was the worst, worst experience of my life. And actually kind of still remains that, uh, that it was just an explosion, really, because I didn't see it coming. It was very horrible. I was madly in love with my husband and he just decided that he didn't want to be married anymore and he left. Uh, and um, I was there raising the girls, you know, pretty much on my own. You know, he was once a week and, you know, every other weekend um, kind of figure in their lives. And it it, uh, it was hard then to really continue with the traveling and continue to nurture this monstrous career that I had um, really built for myself but I was determined to do it because I I really did believe that you know I I could have it all and um you know I don't regret I don't regret having done that I don't say oh I wish because if I had given up my career and had stayed home with the kids I wouldn't be able to afford them the kind of lifestyle that they lead now, because I, you know, I, I obviously help them um, to some degree. You know, Becky, my oldest daughter, lives at our family farm, a farm that I purchased after my uh, husband left, like, some like 22 years ago. Um, Joey and I, my younger daughter, we've bought a cabin together in the Yukon. She lives in the Yukon off grid, and um, I was able to help her do that. And I was helped you know, I was able to help them um, live some of their dreams. So, it, and they appreciate it so much. Anyway, uh, I, you know, I could go on forever about the subject. It's something I'm very passionate about. And it's something that I also, you know, maybe you don't, you don't have to listen to me if you don't want to, but I encourage every uh, young woman or, you know, or young man out there that is deciding to start a family um, to, understand that if they really want somehow to have it all they will work it out in a way that you know they may not have it all all at once but don't give up on your own personal dreams because when your kids fly the coop if you've given already given up your career and your passion and your it's very hard to recapture that you can't just you know even if you take a, a full year off your career and business. Hmm. In my day, I wasn't allowed to. I, yeah. I couldn't take maternity leave. But, uh, you know, in that way, I was threatened that I, I, they wouldn't give me my job back if I left. So I only took a couple of weeks off with each child. But anyway, it worked out. So there.
Yeah, it, well, it's amazing, Jeannie. And I, I, I connect deeply with that. I have a 16-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. And I started as a musician. I went to music television hosting. And then I was like, I think I'm going to be an actor now. So, so, I, so I get it. And it's very, it's motivational and inspirational to me. So, uh, it's, so thanks for it. Um, I want to ask you a little bit um, about after 27 years, fashion television, the business is changing. FT gets canceled. And I can't imagine that was an easy transition for you. Like that your identity is connected with this television show. That must have been hard. Or was it not? Listen, I'm realistic enough. And I've been in the business long enough since I was 16 years old. That's when I started in this show business. I really felt that it was over. Like I, as much as I still love doing the show and it was still resonating with people, maybe not as much as it had, the new media had started to change everything. You know, the uh, the advent of the internet. Wow, all of a sudden, it wasn't so special that you had a backstage pass to a show because all kinds of people were getting in, you know, all kinds of bloggers and, you know, and, and, and I applauded that too. I mean, why not? The democratization of, uh, of the media, in a sense, and the democratization of fashion. Uh, it, it had all, you know, it was all changing very, very rapidly. And uh, it wasn't as interesting to me as it had been. I realized that there had been this, let's call it a golden age of fashion that started like probably around the mid eighties when we started our show and that really started to dissipate by about 2012, 2014. You know, once Alexander McQueen died, once John Galliano uh, sort of fell from grace, um, once big business had really taken over the fashion world and was sucking the life out of these artists. Uh, things had just changed and it wasn't as appealing to me to cover the scene the way I had been. Also, the media, the television landscape had become so fragmented. There were so many different channels and so many different shows coming up and so many different ways of watching TV that it was very hard to maintain the kind of ratings that, you know, that we had. Uh, so it wasn't um, viable anymore for them to produce a show of this nature because it cost a lot they were sending the crews around the world and you know so at any rate I um so I, I thought okay they're canceling it you know it, it wasn't a happy moment for me but but I was always about on to the next you know Carl Lagerfeld really uh inspired me to see the world that way you know it's, forget about the show that you just did you know yesterday you're going to think about the show that you're going to do tomorrow so I was always thinking okay let's do something great and I was you know, with the Bell Media at the time, of course, they owned the show and they made a lot of promises that they were going to find me a new show, a new platform. And say they kept me on my contract for another couple of years after fashion television uh, disintegrated. And I really thought we were going to do something fabulous, but that sort of never transpired. However, I always had my tentacles out there looking for other things. And um, I wonderfully... Uh, started working with Rogers and TSC, the shopping channel. Uh, and I had a clothing line at the time. So I started selling my clothes on the shopping channel. And that was kind of fun because it was live TV. And I was getting to talk fashion on a very basic level. But it, it was the kind of stuff that I never had a chance to talk about before. You know, when I was traveling in those uh, haute couture circles. You know, we were just talking 
about clothes on a very heady level. So this this felt that I was getting closer to those women who had grown up watching me. And I pitched them the idea to do a, a series called Style Matters, which would be talking to the designers, but also selling the clothes and talking about the trends and talking about the brands. And and anyway, it, it really took off. You know, I've just finished my uh, eighth year with the show. That's like 16 seasons. And I'll be back in the uh, in the spring and it's it's great fun it's two hours of live tv i never had a chance to do live tv like that before so well you know everything you describe um genie is just is resiliency through all these ups and downs and as we talked about you know it easily you found that fight from your parents and and it's it's totally inspiring i'm sure to the to everyone who listens to this podcast and you know i've heard you say um, the most precious gift we can give each other are our own personal stories. And I love that. And another major chapter, obviously, in your life has been your very public experience with breast cancer. You know, you're you were so just like, look, here's what's happening on social media, on, on television interviews. Can I ask where you are on your journey now and why you felt so important to share such a personal story? Well, I'm in a, a good place on my journey now because uh, just about uh, 10 days ago, um, I heard that I was cancer free in terms of it, the fact that my pathology came back after my surgery. And uh, I was a little unnerving, but they, because I thought maybe they'd have to go in for a second surgery. And, and they said, nope, they got it all. And I didn't have it in my lymph nodes. And, you know, that was, that's great. Now, as a, a prophylactic, let's say I will be having radiation treatment and that will start probably, you know, mid to late December, and that will be 15 rounds of radiation for three weeks. I'm on this miracle drug called Herceptin for the type of breast cancer I have, which is called HER2 positive. Uh, about 22 years ago, a wonderful drug called Herceptin was invented. Uh, and if you want to watch the story, you can get it on Apple TV. Uh, Harry Connick Jr. Uh, stars as the doctor that invented it in a movie called Living Proof, which is quite inspiring. Anyway, I'm on this Herceptin. I would go in every three weeks to Princess Margaret Cancer Center, which is the most glorious place on earth for me right now. It's an incredible place filled with rock stars. Uh, and I get this drug through intravenous and I get it uh, every three weeks. And I will do that through till June because they like to give it to you for a year. So I started mm -hmm. it when I had my chemotherapy back in June. So I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling that there, there really has to be an awareness now that cancer um, is not the scariest word. It, it can't be, because if you look at it that way, you'll bury your head in the sand or you will create a living hell for yourself once you've been diagnosed. You have to just celebrate the advancements that are made. And yes, for some people, it's extremely bad news and, and it's been discovered too late and there is no hope. And, and my heart just really, you know, goes out to those people. But for so many other people, um, if discovered early breast cancer is not only treatable, it is curable. And one in eight women are going to be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. So this is something that we all have to really be vigilant about. Everyone's got to go for mammograms, as unpleasant as they may be for some. And uh, everyone's just got to get on top of their own personal health. So Jeannie, did 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 sharing that story and being and sharing so much of your personal life did it help you in any way? Was it something that helped you like to, like not give the cancer the power that or that fear? Absolutely. 
absolutely. It was the best thing I could possibly have done. I know it's not easy for everyone to share their stories or be that public, but I thought, hey, I am privileged with this incredible platform. I have to use it for good. I mean, I didn't want to tell everybody what I was going through for my own, you know, at first for my own personal therapeutic reasons. I just thought I want to share this because if there's anybody else out there that's going through this, I want them to know that, you know, hey, I want to hold your hand. Um, but the love and the support that has come back to me on social media, you know, from people on the street, from it has been so profound. It has helped, you know, really restore my faith in humanity almost. The people are so compassionate and so kind and so there for each other. And it has really um, helped me just feel so good about my life and about life in general and all the energy that I put out there over the years um, doing what I did. It feels like I, I gave people a lot because they say, you know, the, the fashion television inspired them so much. And, but it really now has come back to me and, and their love and support inspires me so greatly. So I don't think I could have done it without everybody out there. Even those people that just dropped a, an emoji, you know, for me, ah, I read each and every message that comes in. I can't always respond to them, of course, but I'm very, very grateful. Um, so appreciative of, of all that caring. It's been incredible for me. Well, Jeannie, you um, have proven that communication, as we've talked about, is an art, the art of communication. And, you know, uh, an, old, an old mime named Marcel Marceau once said, an artist has to be a witness of their time. And you have been a witness to the to, through music, through fashion, through this journey in your life, and you've allowed everybody to do it. And I just think it's so beautiful. Um, and uh, I, I, I really appreciate your time. Oh, Matt, thank you. This has been a wonderful uh, conversation. Sorry for talking so much, you know, but like as a former mime, I'm making up for lost time. But um, <laughs> I just so enjoyed it. Your questions were wonderful and uh, and you're you're just incredible and you're great to look at too so i'm oh, well. <laughs> glad that i at least have you on uh, video here <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll take it all um genie so three quick questions is how okay. we end ev every podcast okay these these answers can be long or short however you you wish okay okay tell me something good about your life i've got a lot of love in my life a lot of love from friends and family and, and fans and followers and uh, that that's what it's all about, right? All you need is love. It certainly makes the ride incredibly worthwhile. Tell me about a good memory. Too many, darling. Too many good memories. There's a flood of things come to mind. The biggest honor um, that I feel that I received in, uh, in, well, 2013, 2014, when I received the Order of Canada, uh, you know, that was... That was an incredible memory. That was an amazing time. I got to take my daughter, Becky. My, I would have loved to take my mom, who was about 93 at the time, but her health was really failing and, and she uh, she couldn't come to Ottawa with me. Um, but I took uh, my oldest daughter, Becky, and um, I'm a, a friend of Laureen Harper's, um, and we got to sleep over at 24 Sussex Drive. And it was just like, wow. I thought, after all my parents had endured and after all they sacrificed and 
coming here as penniless immigrants, you know, all those years ago, back in 1948, after the war, after having lost everything, you know, their daughter was, you know, sleeping in the prime minister's house and going to Rideau Hall the next day and receiving this incredible honor that is truly about, you know, I guess being a, you know, a, a good or a, an influential Canadian um, boy. That that was a special, special memory. And I treasure that. Like, see, look at here I am in my country house, like wearing like schleppy clothes, but I'm wearing my Order of Canada pin because I wear it every single day of my life because it reminds me to as always aspire to be a better person. Wow. Incredible. And Jeannie, finally, tell us something good we should always do for ourselves. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Don't be hard on yourself. Take yourself lightly. Don't take yourself too seriously, but just really be kind to yourself because, you know, boy, I, I look back on even, even a superficial way, Matt, like how, you know, and women especially, I think we beat ourselves up because we don't think we're cute enough or pretty enough or thin enough or get, you know, I look back at these pictures of myself, you know, when I was young and I, wow, I was really pretty hot. Like, why wasn't I nicer to myself? Why was I so insecure about, you know, what I was looking like or what I was coming across as like, ah, you know, like, like they say, youth is wasted on the young. You really, I think, have to be kind to yourself and maybe that will inspire you to be kind to others as well. Cause, uh, it's all about compassion, love and compassion. It's all about love and compassion, being kind to yourself and being kind to others. I mean, I don't know what else can be said. Um, you know, Jeannie has, as I mentioned off the top, just made her career on not only being talented, but kind and gracious. I mean, you could hear it in this interview, the type of person she is. And, you know, you might be able to say after years of experience, you learn to be such a kind and gracious person and this is these are the things that you learn. But, you know, from all my interactions with people who have dealt with Jeannie in the past, her reputation as a kind and gracious person precedes her. And I think this is one of the reasons for her longevity. And... Um, and I'm just so also happy and and thankful to hear that her diagnosis and her prognosis with her breast cancer journey is a good one. And how amazing is it that she has been using her platform to help spread awareness and, and positivity? I mean, her, her positive outlook on life really is infectious. I mean, just sort of being on a, on a Zoom call and having this conversation with her really fired me up. I have to tell you, it, it just felt like, I, I don't know, you know how sometimes you feel like you're in the right place at the right time or the universe throws you messages or throws you clues to say, hey, you're doing something that you're supposed to be doing. Don't, don't you give up. I felt like that with this interview. It, it was validation for me starting this podcast, validation for the changes I've made in my own life and my own career. Just truly uh, an inspiring um, conversation with with Jeannie Becker, and I hope I hope you feel something similar. So thank you, Jeannie Becker, so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your story. Um, what a wonderful, unique um, journey! 
And thank you, as always, to all of you for being here and listening. I appreciate it more than you know. If you dig what we're doing, uh, please make sure that you subscribe, you like, you leave a review, a comment. All those things really help us get out into the, uh, into the universe, into the podcast universe. Good Things with Matt Wells is produced by me, Matt Wells, and my good friend Vince Buddha for Greater Hood Productions. Our theme song is Good Things by Walter Schreifels, as performed by his band Rival Schools. Thanks so much for listening. And like Jeannie Becker says, be kind to yourself and be kind to others. We'll talk to you next time.